out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of modern English because I recently spoke to their guitar player. It is the one and only Mike or Michael Conroy. To find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff, the band are still very, very happening. And if you want to find out any more information, they have a very good website with lots of information. But uh, this is the interview. So um, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat that we edit out, I know, drastic, uh, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Michael, it's over to you. Well, uh, do you know what? Enough. It was. I was born in '62, so it was. Um, you know, I went from Slade to um, uh, David Bowie. You know, with, when I was got my first um, uh, LP at Christmas, it was. Uh, I asked for Aladdin Sane, <clears throat> and um, yeah, the same review. I thought um, all B sides, but like Velvet Goldmine uh, and uh, Roxy Music. Yes. You know, uh, or. Um, they were uh, the kind of bands that I was into. Uh, then I, um, you know, I mean, I went to boarding school in Wolverston, just outside Ipswich, and uh, right. it was a boys' school. And um, you know, there was all different types of music going on all the time. <laughs> you know, from um, you know, when you're eleven, close to the edge, you know, Yes and Genesis and uh, all of that stuff. But generally. The consistent thing was, um, without a shadow of a doubt, David Bowie, <laughs> and then right. then rock, punk rock came along, and it kind of you know if you like David Bowie and Roxy Music, you're instantly going to like um, the Clash and Wire and X-Ray Specs, and you know Live at the Roxy LP. Yes. Don't you remember that? Oh yes, yeah. a great version of Oh Bondage Up Yours, which was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, of course, um, you know John Peel was uh, you know he he was the main uh, person around that time um yeah we all listened everyone listened to you know and there was you know like the local record shop our um keyboard player steve worked in so did i actually in power records which was like an independent record shop and um you pretty much would just buy every single punk rock or new wave Right. records you know as it appeared there used to be a list on the side of the counter you know and it, <clears throat> you'd think like you know what's um you know chinese rocks 12 inch you know it's like i'll find out in a half a minute and then i'll take it buy it and take it home you know and it was basically john peel and like you know local record shops and concerts you know we were lucky in colchester yes because was- we had it Essex University, and uh, you know, for a pound, you could see, you know, Susan the Banshees, Human League, and Spitz Energy, all on one bill. And um, uh, yes, uh, um, that's quite handy, wasn't it? Really? I, I mean, you, the first. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, did you, did your, were your parents at all musical? Did they have any sort of influence on your sort of musical direction at that kind of early age? Not really. My dad used to like Johnny Cash and uh, Glenn Campbell and Neil Diamond. My dad was in the army. I mean, Colchester was, a, you know, an army town. And, uh, you know, so it was, um, you know, uh, 
you know, they were from a different era. It's country and Western and the Dubliners and the Clancy brothers. Right, you know, yes. Was, my mum my used to like the Rolling Stones. I think she um, was, you know, she thought Mick Jagger was um, incredibly attractive and slightly rebellious. But there was no, um, uh, you know, no massive um, kind of like, you know, I, I, I've got um, three sisters and a brother and we were all into, you know, all of us were into music. My parents, they had more, you know, other things to worry about, you know, yes. in those days. Well, I guess yeah, being in the um, yes, well, there was a lot of children too. And where do you sort of fit in that? Because I'm I'm the youngest of three, and there was a bit of an age gap between my two older brothers and me. So, where do you sit in in the sort of family sort of? I, I'm just the second, second second oldest. Right, my brother older than me, and so you know it's like when, when you have an older brother as well, you kind of um, you know, you can you know go through you know what they you kind of choose what records you want to get you know you get this i'll get that one kind of thing it's, well it's uh, interesting because my, my older brother was seven years older and he he was obviously the oh, 70s okay. was his period and it was prog rock so all those albums you know close to the edge topographic oceans you know the the whole genesis barkley james harvest wishbone ash so he and he was very anti-punk, you know, which was a bit unfortunate in later life because obviously it would have been good. But I know the work of the solo work of Rick Wakeman instead. So and um, John Anderson and Steve Harrow, because I kind of thought that he was cool and um, I was quite young and um, we were in the countryside. So we didn't have that cultural stuff that went on. So unfortunately, um, punk didn't really happen. It doesn't happen in, in the, you know, in the countryside of East Anglia, does it very quickly? It was status quo, bit of heavy metal, you know, bikers, denim jackets, you know, yeah. and, and a bit of heavy yeah. metal, really, at the disco. It was it was kind of quite grim, really. <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. We 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 played um in Norwich uh in about 78 opening for the undertones and uh uh you know it was still kind of like um you, you know there was uh, people from Norwich wanted to go and fight people from Colchester <laughs> basically you know the punk rock gigs it was we we came off covered in spit you know people were just spitting at us you know which was like the punk rock thing to do they thought but yeah uh, yes I mean, so when did you when in, did you in, i was going to say when did you get a guitar oh um <clears throat> when i was about 15, 14 15 i um uh got a guitar for um uh, my mum got it for me actually in the local um corner shop there was a sign saying guitar for sale and uh <clears throat> it cost 10 pounds and uh, my mum didn't know this, but, uh, you know, inside the um, Roxy Music For Your Pleasure album, mm. uh, each member of the band's playing a guitar. This guitar was exactly the same guitar that Brian Eno had. So, uh, you know, I kind of like thought, wow, this is incredible. My mum's bought me a guitar, like, exactly the same as Brian Eno's. So, uh, but I, obviously I couldn't um, do what Brian Eno did. You know, it was... Um, bar chords, learning how to play. This is the thing about punk rock when it started. The idea was that um, anyone could do it. So it was like, learn to play, um, you know, <laughs> a pretty vacant, God save the Queen. If you could play the bar chord, you you were away, you know. Yes. So, um, you know, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, it's, you know, in those days, it was like, you know, 
Steve Howe and you know all of that lot they were kind of like way out there and you know genius guitar players and then punk came along and it said actually um you know if if the song's longer than three minutes three and a half minutes it's um you know boring and dull so um it was easy for young people to um, learn how to, to you know to you know join in yes and when can you remember your first gig or was it the susan the Banshees uh, one no, uh, the first gig that we played. No, the first, the first gig you gig went to. Bebop Deluxe. Uh, uh, it was which Gaumont. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mine, actually, mine was at the uh, the Gaumont scene Nine Below Zero in about 1980 or 1979. So it has got fond memories, really. When you go to your first gig, it all just seems rather exciting and um, huge and loud. And um, yes, nothing's the same again, is it really? So when you got to 16, I mean, no. oh, sorry. Yeah. I was no, going to no, say, no, when, do you, when you got to 16, did you leave school at that stage or did you go to college, university? No, 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 no. I left school. And um, I mean, I, <clears throat> with um, Modern English, we, they originally the, they were called the Lepers, okay, you know, punk rock. And the uh, first gig was with the Banshees and Adam and the Ants. And then um, shortly after that, there were... Um, uh, guitar the bass player left the original bass player and then I joined and um uh when I was 15 so my first gig was um opening for sham sham 69 when it was like the you know hardcore skinhead type thing so a bit of a baptism of fire <laughs> and uh, I um then you know we we just um, started to get more gigs and uh, I was going to go to the technical college in Colchester, but I kind of you know I um, got a job in the record shop and it was a bit like you know work in a record shop or um, go to uh, college and you know spend more time you know being able to be in a band and rehearse and also get paid yes as well. That's amazing, actually. At that stage, because that was, I suppose you're getting towards the late 70s. So the the post-punk period was kind of starting to um, develop because there was, you know, when you mentioned Adam and the Ants, had Marco Peroni joined the band by then? No, no, <laughs> no. This was, um, uh, you know, uh, 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 Johnny Bivouac. I mean, I, I'm a bit of a train spotter here. I can remember the names. And uh, uh, Andy Warren, I think, from um, who was either in the monochrome, I think he joined the monochrome set afterwards, right? The bass player, and um, but I think the um, the drummer Dave Barberi, he ended up in Bow Wow Wow, and then you know, this was like pre Bow Wow Wow and all of this. I mean, the ants were, I, I don't at the time. I don't think any of them even had record deals. You know, they were just kind of, um, you know, bands that you'd go and see. I mean, Adam and the Ants, they used to hand out um, in those days, um, they had um, uh, pamphlets that they used to hand out with all of the, you know, crazy, you know, um, ant music for sex people, imagery and lyrics on everything. So people would kind of, you know, there was, uh, kind of, you know, a bit of a, I, they were like a kind of punk rock Grateful Dead, I suppose. They had like a <laughs> hardcore following. Yes. And they used to, there was a guy who used to make a fanzine called Xerox as well. 
who, yes. and so that was dedicated to the ants. I mean, there was in those days it was like um, you know sniffing glue, the fanzine that Mark Perry, who later on became um, ATV, you know, alternative television, who were also uh, a band that I really liked at the time. You know, and they had already already <clears throat> ATV and Wire had already kind of like <clears throat> gone away from like two and a half minute hardcore punk, you know, thrash to um, kind of more, you know, um, you know, ex- you know, they were kind of exploring, you know, within their uh, their abilities of what they could do. I mean, if you listen to the first Wire album, you know, there's, um, you know, one, two XU on there. And then there's also, um, you know, kind of like slow songs as well, which weren't really punk rock at all. Um, yes. You know, well, I've always got fond memories of Wire because I remember sort of going from that period of prog rock and serious music, which my brother had, to sort of John Peel hearing I'm a Fly in the Ointment and being like, that's a, that's not topographic. This is not beautiful imagery. This is not sort of Rick Wakeman going off on one or Chris Squire going off on one or all of them going off on one. It was just like, I'm the Fly in the Ointment. It was just very... Oh, that's this is a different kind of. I've just walked into a different space here, haven't I? So, it was going to be a different a different journey. And I was just kind of curious because curious with the Adam thing because because I don't know if you've heard the exciting news, but there's a man called Rima Rima who did one. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Rima Rima. Well, there's suddenly been this huge amount of interest because Dorothy Max Pryor has just written a book about her period at 69 Exhibition Road, which is kind of that kind of late mid 70s to early 80s. And then there's some person's made a film about Rima Rima. And there's the kind of the mysterious Marco Peroni, who's who then sort of gets headhunted almost by Adam and leaves the band, yeah. which leaves the rest of them wondering what to do. So they quit. So that's the end of that. So you're, you, well, became, I, you know, that sorry. kind of story. Yeah. So, you know, that story. Oh, well. oh yeah. Well, um, they, um, I mean, that's an amazing record real in the roses. I mean, they, um, uh, that, that was on 4AD. The first record. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so um, Ivo, we, we, we'd stopped being the lepers and we uh, uh, we did some demos and we uh, became, um, you know, we thought this is crazy. You can't send demos to people called the lepers. And uh, so we changed our name to Modern English and we sent um, sets to everyone. And Ivo uh, um, and Peter Kent, who um, they... Uh, but worked in the record shop at Beggar's Banquet and Earl's Court. The, so the record company was upstairs, like a couple of telephones and a desk, and the record shop downstairs. They um, contacted us, and uh, over a period of time, uh, we ended up on 4AD, but our first gig was in Deptford at the Albany Empire. Right. And it was basically with Rima Rima, except Marco had left... By this time, it was uh, Mick, um, the bass player, Gary, and um, the singer, and um, Mark Cox. And I don't think Max was there. But, um, it, it, so, of course, they ended up being Max and the Wolfgang Press and all of that. I, I mean, I, the, you know, I, yeah. Yes. Ima Ima, they were kind of like, I mean, that record was incredible. Absolutely amazing record. And then they split up. I mean... The um, 
yeah, I, I mean, I'm here. I haven't been able to see the film, but it was definitely on my um, radar. Yes, well, I, I think you'll like it. And it's kind of, it's got all the members apart from Marco. And then Dorothy's got this book as well, which is also a bit of a page turner that highlights a lot of that kind of story of all these bands who were so interchangeable so then so modern english it was the late 70s early 80s yes the the period where thatcher gets into power and then we have a conservative government for a million years and then the next next couple of years we have the 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 falkland war the miners you know um kind of rioting there was also greenham common so it was kind of a quite a politically kind of murky and heady time wasn't it so how did how did it sort of affect the band at this stage knowing that um so, so much was at stake oh yeah i mean um during that period i mean when when we um signed to 4ad we um uh you know we lived in colchester we kind of like did our um you know uh, forming of the band and playing you know incredibly out of tune concerts around east anglia and the odd one in uh, London, <laughs> that was when we um, signed to um, uh, 4AD. We, you know, suddenly we were playing with like Rima Rima, you know, even though they weren't Rima Rima and Bauhaus, and uh, playing at the Moonlight Club and the Rock Garden. So we moved my brother and his mates, who, um, you know, it was old school friends, <laughs> lived in a um, squats in uh, Notting Hill Gate, right, Lapwick Grove, and. Uh, which was a completely different place in those days. It was like rubbish skips everywhere and people like doing up houses. And um, one of the few shops in that area was Rough Trade Records next to a cafe called The Favourite Cafe. But um, So we all, we lived in, um, uh, you know, we were squatting basically, you know, in, in those days where, um, you know, on the dole, you, you know, we've... Uh, absolutely no money whatsoever, but a rehearsal space around the corner that several of the other local, I mean, our next door neighbors for a period of time were um, Killing Joke. Right. In, uh, yeah, in Lancaster Road, just off Portobello Road. There's, um, you know, a lot of, um, uh, a lot of uh, musicians and artists and, you know, the Clash kind of Apocalypse Hotel down in Latimer Road. Well, so it was um, a cheap place to live for um, bands, but um, <clears throat> I mean, we, we, the, I mean, like you said, everything was, I mean, you know, black and white. <laughs> you know, the TV. <laughs> you know, we didn't. You know, we just didn't have any money. We, I mean, some houses we didn't even have hot water. You know, we used to have to go to Labrador Grove uh, swimming pool for a yes. weekly shower. <laughs> yeah. I mean, probably definitely it, not it a was, washing machine life in a laundrette that was always a nice experience wasn't it An yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and doing your laundry but um yeah <clears throat> thing is you know when you we were young it was still you know we were still kind of like um you know optimistic about what we could do as a band but um uh, you know it's it's strange now you know when you kind of like occasionally you'll see a list of like 20 goth albums and you'll see our, the first modern english record in there and you think you know it was it's you know our, our clothes were from a kensington market or charity shops <laughs> you know as i we, we weren't um you know goth it was um 
you know, like Bauhaus and Joy Division and, um, you know, Gang of Four and the Mekons and bands like that, that and Monochrome set. You know, it's like if, if you, um, uh, you know, had a black and white record sleeve, people now think that you were being goth, whereas yes. at the time, you know, you were just thinking, well, it looks quite cool. You know, it makes a change from all of the kind of like Roger Dean, you know, <laughs> artwork. Yes, it definitely was. And also, you know, if you haven't got washing facilities in your little house, it uh, it saves them to um, sort of worry about washing if there's no white clothing. So um, you just never gonna, you're never going to wear white, are you? You know, it's like it just isn't. I think it was Throbbing Gristle. I'm not sure where they all lived in the same house and they put all their clothes in a in a box and you know they just picked whatever was there in the morning in one of those kind of. It was almost like a cult, really, wasn't it? I think a lot of those sort of yeah. bands. Took it to quite, quite yeah, yeah. extreme, really. So, um, yeah. might. Well, we, we, I mean, for um, even up until our third LP, we all lived in the same house. You know, we, we, you know, we ended up with um, a housing association. You know, from squatting, but um, you know, it, I mean, you know, in Labbert Grove and Holland and um, Notting Hill Gate, the houses are quite big. You know, and if there's vacant building, you could like get, you know, the there was, uh, I mean, t- two of the guys from our school uh, ended up being, well, three, actually, at the band Colourbox, who uh, oh, right. we always lived as well. Yeah, my brother was, I mean, their manager. And I was in the year with um, Stephen, and my brother was in the same year as Martin. So, you know, we, and there was another band called Ski Patrol. I don't know if you remember them. They had a great song called Agent Orange, which um, now... Uh, you know, if it came out now, people would say it was kind of, you know, it, it could easily come out now. But um, so they lived with us as well. And uh, a guy called Trevor Herrian, who he had a band called the Fallout Club. That, um, he, um, you know, I mean, he, he was working with uh, some uh, keyboard player called Thomas Dolby at the time. Right. <laughs> <You> know, <it's, laughs> but it was, it, it was um, you know, the, the, Basically, we we we'd kind of like write in the house, and you know, it was, there was always um you know music going on in the house in the houses that we lived in. But there'd just be like different bands kind of getting their um you know their ideas together. Yes, because one thing that you mentioned a bit earlier was John Peel. Because I realised during that time, you know, we had these quite exciting gatekeepers or very important gatekeepers. And John Peel, obviously, when you listened to him at that time, you didn't think many other people were in the world. But now I realised how kind of important his kind of show was and what a network it was. And there was also three weekly music papers. And there was also every town and city in the UK had an alternative indie night you know, which, you know, again, help people yeah. sort of just get their little transit van and um, discover all the little sort of highways and byways of kind of the the uh, road network around um, the UK, really. But it kind of also made people feel like they were progressing somehow because because obviously, you know, they, especially the 80s indie scene that, that I've been a bit obsessed with, there is a sort of five-year narrative, isn't there? They sort of, the 12-month honeymoon, the John Peel, you know, John Peel plays the first single, you get the John Peel session, and then suddenly you're thinking, well, it's a bit like a, a board game, isn't it? Go go to the next place, oh, buy, get a record, you know, go to a label, 
you know, do the studio, get that first album, things going well, second album, not sure, sure, third album, totally disastrous. So, I mean, that's that's kind of, you know, a, a simplistic view of it. But you, again, you know, it was 24-7 with most bands and obviously with modern English it was the same, wasn't it? You were just churning out albums after albums in that early part of the decade. Yeah, well, I, we... Um... We, we, I mean, we, it took a bit of a turn after. I mean, we did the first album. I mean, you know, we in, in those days it would be a bit like, um, uh, you know, you don't put any singles on the LP, you, you know, because you feel like, like you were saying, you know, you want an interesting B side or something like that to happen. And um, we um, uh, did did the first album, and it, it like you said, I've never heard, you know, thought of it before, but it's like a board game. You know, it's like then you play in Paris. You know, when you when we were young, it was like all of these things were like, you know, you know, the idea of actually going to Florence to play a concert was, you know, not something that you thought of when you were like in a transit van, you know, uh, broken down outside Coggeshaw, you know, or you know, Bedford coming yes. back from. And I think in wherever in- they- and in the 80s, you know, the passport, you I think you get a one-year passport, you just go to the local post office, didn't you? And just wait in right. queue. And we'd just kind of get yeah. this very papery little passport and go, oh, I'm I'm going to Europe. But you wouldn't bother get anything more elaborate if you were working class, because you think I'm never going to go abroad again. So <laughs> I don't want to yeah, yeah. don't want to be too optimistic here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it was um it, it was Peter Kent who um at 4AD. He um, had uh, friends in Belgium and uh, he um, uh, one day said to us, you know, we were talking about, you know, what what we were doing. And he said, do you want to play in Belgium? And we're like, yeah, you know, of course we want to play in Belgium. And, uh, you know, he kind of, <clears throat> you know, he organised it for us. And it was, um, you know, it's, it was all, you know, part of, um, you know, being, I mean, it, we had no idea, you know, what they, even then 4AD didn't really know what was, you know, in store for them. You know, it was, um, you know, trying to, um, you know, make records on as small a budget as possible. You know, it's like, I, I mean, I sometimes I don't know how they did it. You know, it was like there was everything was like to the last penny. Yes, you know, I could those, imagine. I, th- I think yeah. when they brought out that their first year, I think it was them. From the film that I, I saw, I think that was when they released the most, I don't know, album single in one year in their whole existence. I think they did something quite a ridiculous but optimistic amount. But I think that's when you're young, you can do that stuff. But then when you did your yeah, second, al- the second album, which followed, was it um, Mace and Lace, that your first one? Mesh and Lace, Mesh and Lace was the first album. <laughs> we did, I mean, that, that was... Um... Uh, we did that in two weeks in um uh, that was in a residential place in Surrey where uh, oddly enough talking to Robin Gristle, there was um uh Ken I forgot its name Ken anyway uh, a guy who was um uh, ended up being in psychic TV uh <clears throat> engineered the album so his ideas were um quite um uh interesting as well and you know that was kind of the album was um kind of like uh, you know we, we basically Ivo said we've got a week Ivo came he, he spent the entire time there he said we have a week to record it and a week to mix it 
you know, whereas before you'd go, we used to go to Spacewood in Cambridge where loads of bands went, yes. where you could go in toward the A side and the B side and get it mixed within 12 hours, you know, so you'd thrash it out. And uh, so, um, you know, we figured that we'd uh, try and do the same. Well, that we, you know, we didn't figure anything. We said, that's the amount. And Ivo said, this is how much we've got to spend and how much time, you know, money was just all about how much time and what we could squeeze in. Yes, when you, and, went, um, you went, when you went to space, was it Space Word or Space something in Cambridge? Was that space when they was yeah. were they was that in their house or had they moved out by then and gone somewhere somewhere yeah, no, else? No, it was in the house in the the studio was in the basements. Yeah, I did, and, I did an interview then, with the guy uh, who ran it. Um, who's now I think in Spain. So I just remember Mike the, Mike Kemp might have been was, him. Was yeah. Because there was him and the guy called Gary Lucas, but not that Gary Lucas who played guitar with right. Jeff Butley. But um, yeah, because right. I met a, there was a guy who was in a, I don't know, an LA band called Jellyfish, and he he just he turned yeah. you know, he mentioned about that studio and saying that he just would listen and buy, well, I don't know about buy, but get every record that came out of that kind of particular, you know, studio. He just was obsessed with it. So um, it had a special quality. So he would, he would have loved it. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, it, I mean, we um, did uh, our uh, gathering, Swans on, we did our first um, two, four, in fact, we did our first three. We did all of our first three singles at Spacewood, two in the house, and the third one, they'd um, bought us an old village school, some just outside of Cambridge. You know, they kind of when they went expanded and went a bit, you know, big. But, yes, um, it was a t- tiny, tiny studio. But um, the guy, I mean, I think his name is Mike Kemp. He was just a really nice bloke, and uh, he kind of he seemed to know exactly what to do. <clears throat> you know, turn on the echo machine at the right time to make um something kind of bit more interesting i mean i i think um i think you know pat gang of four did their first eps there uh, i think the mekons loads of people would go for, come from all over the country to go to um yes but place. then but then on your second album which is after the snow you go to the famous rockfield studios which we we love that documentary in the countryside yeah. so what was your experience how long <clears throat> did you spend at rockfield looking at the um uh, the lush grass yeah, uh, we um, uh, oh, uh, Hugh Jones had uh, just done Heaven Up Here by Echo and the Bunny Man. Hugh Jones produced it, and uh, we, um, I mean, obviously it was a great record. And for the second album, I, I think after what we'd done so far, Ivo wanted us to be a bit more, um, um, you know, cohesive and uh, you know tighter, and uh, you know, so he. Um, you know, we looked around at producers. We didn't really know what a producer did. And Hugh Jones was top of our, our list. And he um, uh, came to see us play and we um, re- really got on with him. And he said that, um, he, you know, he used to be an engineer at Rockfield before he became, you know, started producing properly as well. He kind of, and he lived in Wales at that period. And he said we should, you know, part of his working, you know, system was to in those days was to go to Rockfield cut you know be cut off from the rest of the world and just um get on with it but um we did um pre-production in London 
and then so that we knew exactly what we were doing. Then when we got to Rockfield, it was, um, like you say, you know, um, uh, you know, being from a, you know, squats in Labbert Grove to this amazing kind of beautiful um, uh, farmhouse in in Wales, and it it really did, um, you know, it's like after a day or so, you're kind of you are, uh, you know, in the country again. Yes. <laughs> It was, um, you know, there were sheep and horses and uh, views and rivers. But, uh, you know, we were, we, we didn't, uh, we, in Monmouth, I think market day was on Tuesday. And um, we'd get, I've forgotten the guy's name, the two brothers. Yes. He, he, had a, he had a Rolls Royce, which we thought was like the height of, and get in that car and drive into town because on market day, of course, the, the pubs were open all day long. So, um, that was um, like the day we'd go into town and then go back to Rockfield. And, um, you know, we were there for six six weeks. Amazing. God, you must have blown the budget on that one. Completely. I mean, it was, um, I, I, poor Ivo was, um, I, that was the first time Ivo had actually kind of used, um, you know, like a proper producer in a proper kind of like, I mean, there was two studios. There was us in one and Robert Plant was in the other studio. Uh, you know, it gives you an idea of how, um, you know, kind of, you know, you think of Robert Plant, you know, spending a fortune on records. And I think I, Ivo is really, um, you know, he really wanted us to kind of like crack on, not go out, which we didn't really. And, uh, you know, get the record delivered as, you know, on time as possible. I mean, we, 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 he virtually was, uh, towards the end, he was kind of like, you know, calling up Hugh and kind of shouting at him, saying, you know, you've got two more days, that's it, you know. And Hugh, I mean, bless him, he'd, uh, uh, you know, we were fed in the studio, but we, we lived in a house and uh, Hugh was having pretty much all of his meals delivered to the mixing desk, you know, coffee and roll-ups and, you know, eating his uh, lunch or dinner, you know, whilst still working he never stopped that guy yes he, he absolutely didn't stop. he was it was amazing you know i mean hugh jones was um you know a massive influence on us you know he um from you know mesh and lace it was all all of our early stuff it was all kind of like songs that we just joined parts together you know with hugh even though we you know we knew how to you know write songs but we We'd go off on our tangents. She would kind of rein us in and say, "Okay, this is, you know, time to bring the verse back in, or the chorus." You know, yeah, and, I mean, also every, it's amazing. Everybody I spoke time. to who's worked with him has just got lovely fond memories. But you know, can't believe how he managed to survive on such a poor diet and no sleep. Oh, right. So you've heard this before. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it was one of those, you know, and then sort of, I think he's still alive. And it's like, wow, that's, you know, because it, oh, yeah. yeah. it did sound like everyone was, you know, all these much younger bands were still thinking, you know, who, you know, when you're young, you can do that. But when you're older, it's quite unusual, isn't it, to be able to live on such a poor diet, no sleep and, oh, and cigarettes. And, um, uh, he, he, he's still a really good friend of mine. He lives in Cornwall now. He's... Um, Lived there for probably about twenty years, and uh, every now and then I, um, uh, you know, a joke with him about you know, he, you know, 
do you fancy doing working with us on this? He always says, I've retired. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. And and I had a, I, I've got a small studio space in just outside Woodbridge. And uh, Hugh came to, it, I mean, he, he's given me some of his old equipment that he used to use in those days, like his Revox tape to tape machine. Yes. And his old um, AC30 um, Vox amp. So I've, I've got some of Hugh Jones's like stuff that was, he made amazing records with. But he came to my studio and uh, he said, you know, he, he said, it smells like a recording studio. And I said, did you fancy doing some work? And he said, can you smoke here? And I said, no. He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you know, if you can't smoke, Hugh doesn't want to work. <laughs> you know, but, you know, oh, he's, that's, a, he's, that's amazing. He's done his time. Yeah. He has definitely done his time. As the 80s progressed and you had sort of, because your follow-up album, Rick, uh, was it Ricochet? Ricochet days. I mean, this. I mean, yeah. obviously, you were still at Rockfields back there again. So Ivo must have been quite pleased. I mean, how was the band coping though? Because obviously, um, yes, yeah, things can get a little bit tricky with any dynamic, and especially the pressure of sort of record sales and money. So, and and it being the mid eighties, I sort of realised with most bands they start to struggle when they realise there's another crop of bands coming through and they're slightly being nudged out and. The fans want the latest thing. So, how were you coping as a sort of a unit? I mean, I mean, it's, I mean, when we did after the snow, I mean, with Mesh and Ace, it was kind of like, you know, it quite small. You know, it was like we were a, a new band on an independent label that not many people knew about. But with um after the snow, um, there was um. This show in um, a radio show in um, a station called WLIR in Long Island in New York, and they were kind of like changing their formats, okay, from a you know like rock or whatever to um, kind of this stuff that John Peel was playing, uh, and you know there was uh, bands like Culture Club were happening and Duran Duran and. Um, Amazingly, flock of seagulls were like really big, and uh, they had this. This guy had this show called Off the Boats, and he'd play um, kind of new wave records. Yes. And he he played um, I Melt with You from um, which uh, we'd released as a single in in the UK. It didn't do anything, and uh, played it as an imports, and um, it um, suddenly that song kind of um, uh, you know. It, it it whatever was happening in that song people really liked it on that radio station and uh then before we knew it seymour stein and david geffen were calling up ivo at 4ad saying you know we want to sign this band modern english to uh, our labels so of course we went with sire who um, had talking heads and ramones and um so then it was like things completely changed for modern english we um suddenly um uh, were basically playing in America all the time, and uh, MTV had just started at that time as well. And we made a video for I Melt Review, cost two thousand pounds. Yes, and um, it was on he basically heavy rotation. And it, we, you know, we went from um, playing. We played the um, ICA, the New Year's Eve, nineteen eighty four, kind of Big Brother thing with you know bands like um, 
you know, the lemon kittens and um, the books and the room and, you know, clock TVA type bands. And the next gig we did was in um, uh, Florida at spring break, which we didn't know about, but it's kind of, it's, uh, you know, like we're all college kids go on their holidays. You know, so the, so we went from um, the ICA to playing, um, you know, one night Bon Jovi were playing and then the next <laughs> night it was modern English. And the, the, the thing that made it even more surreal was that opening band for modern English were the members, you know, who I'd kind of seen a hundred times and got all their records. And it was like, surely there's a mistake on the, um, you know, but suddenly modern English had, um, you know, we were like all over the radio and all over MTV. And um, we were part of, um, you know, in a very small way, this um, new thing that was called the, you know, the British invasion. We didn't know what the hell was going on, you know, it was like, and we we were on, um, we were touring for um, pretty much like six months, you know, we'd done like four gigs in Belgium and suddenly we were like, you know, playing concerts every night in Cincinnati and, you know, we'd been played every single town with a college in America and, uh, you know, and more. So it was interesting about the 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 flock of seagulls because I I remember I don't know five six years ago going to I don't know something like Las Vegas and hearing you know the Iran Iran to you by the, the flock of seagulls and I couldn't work it out and then someone said oh when MTV started they didn't have any videos but this band from England had a video so they went oh that's great we'll just put it on and it will just be played a lot because until everyone else catches up with that culture. You know, yeah, so yeah. It, it kind of got embedded in the DNA of America. So it's like, oh, because frankly, I didn't take them that seriously. I shouldn't say that. But... I mean, they they um they they originally signed to a Bill Nelson's record label, Cocteau Records, right? Bill Nelson, you know, back to the bebop deluxe thing. You know, Bill Nelson started his own label, and they were one of the bands. And I used to go and see Bill Nelson play. And Flock of Seagulls were quite often the opening band, and they were nothing like, you know, that I ran. But having said that, you know, from, um, you know, you know, from people to think of Gathering Dust by Modern English or anything off the first album to the second album, you know, when Hugh Jones got involved, we, um, you know, there was a, a development in our sound, basically. Yes. You know, earlier you were talking about David Bowie. One of the things that I really liked about David Bowie was that each record sounded like a completely different person to my young ears. You know, young Americans to um, station to station to um, low. You know, is you know, it's like three different bands, really. You know? Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, now it all it all seems very good, but you know, Bowie was amazing in the seventies because he did one album a year. And produced several other albums for people like Lou Reed, Niggy Pod, and did several films. But it was the fact that he got a new lineup for each, nearly new lineup for each of those albums. And you're thinking, there was a lot to sort out and then write the material and tour. I don't quite know how he managed to um, juggle quite so many things, plus a drug addiction and um, you know relationships. <laughs> but but it was quite it was quite boggling, really. So when you got to sort of eighty five, eighty six, you were doing that. You know, your fourth album, Stop Start. Did it feel like the band were beginning to sort of wobble a bit? Oh, majorly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we'd lost 
our um, keyboard player and drummer and acquired a new kit. It was all, we, I think, um, uh, we, and also we kind of lost touch a bit with 4AD. You know, Ivo would um, come out and see us, you know, play, you know, opening up for Tom Petty and, you know, the Stray Cats at like a baseball stadium in um, San Diego and think this is a long way removed from, you know, Rima Rima or, uh, you know, what he was, what was going on. I, I mean, the colour box were um, uh, signed to 4AD by this time. So I was signing more bands, but uh, so we were, um, you know, it, it, everywhere we went, there were representatives from Warner Brothers, you know, who owned Sire. And it was almost like, um, you know, we, we it, it was like a, a, a diff, just a completely different thing. You know, it's like you know, with um, at 4AD, it was, um, you know, still that, that kind of DIY type yes. thing. I, I don't think that, um, you know, I mean, we were young as well. You know, it's like, you know, there's your tour bus, there's your hotel, there's, you know, do do what you want kind of thing. And then, so um, we, we um, left 4AD and then just signed directly to uh, Warner Brothers. And of course, Warner Brothers, <clears throat> you know, we were, we were a bit naive, you know, Warner Brothers, they, all they wanted was an album full of I Melt reviews, you know, like, and we, we still kind of had, um, you know, we weren't capable of doing that and huge we so we worked with um a, a different producer the one that warner brothers wanted us to work with and uh it basically it was ridiculous you know the, we went to martin russian studio right. martin russian was to um produce the lp with uh his uh this guy called stephen stewart Schwartz. And it was obvious from the very beginning that Marcin Russian was incapable of, you know, spending any time outside of the pub. <laughs> well, it's funny because last well, last week yeah, I did an interview with the uh, singer from Wasted Youth who got an experience with Martin. Ken, Ken, you know, Ken Scott, I know him. And he was but saying I'm that Martin not. was kind of laying on the floor and occasionally they'd ask him something, he'd say, I'll oh, just just move, move that slider up a bit and then just kind of collapse again under the desk. <laughs> he said it it wasn't a very good success, a good, a good session. You know, the air I'd listened to it and it was all right, but he said that, you know, Martin was just laying on the floor, sort of just pointing, saying, move the move that up or move that down a bit while he went and collapsed again, you know. And um yeah, I, I mean, he um I mean. He was a lovely bloke, you know. So he was, um, you know, like in Goring in Thames, where his studio was. He was like the king of the hill, and uh, you know, everyone in the pub loved him because you know he brought all of these bands. You know, Depeche Mode were there at the same time, but um, uh, he, you know, he he kind of like have a a bloody nose and a black eye one day. Just you think, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't know what. You know what is going on, but um, so I mean that that album was um, chaotic. I mean, I, uh, you know, it's not. I, I don't even. It's, I don't even think about you know that 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 record. It was um, you know, just a complete and utter. You know, just throwing money into um, 
you know, the, the, you know, the studio, you know, they had all of this new technology, you know, like Fairlights, Synclavier. And we, we had to, um, you know, employ a guy in the studio, in the studio, just because, you know, all of this te new technology, no one knew how it worked, except for um, uh, Hazel O'Connor's brother, <laughs> as it turned out. He used to be in a band called The Yachts. Yes, The Yachts from Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Waikiki Beach Refugees was their, uh, uh, their song that John Peel played. But so he, he, he was a real boffin. And um, so we made this record that, um, you know, if you listen back to it, you think, how the hell are we going to play that live? You know, it's all, um, you know, uh, programmed drums and even programmed bass guitars. You know, that, um, it, no, uh, I, I, I mean, I don't have much uh, fondness for that record. It was just kind of like mega reverb and, um, you know, it almost sounded like a soundtrack for Miami Vice. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was a disappointing, disappointing days. Then do you have a few years in the wilderness trying to sort of navigate your next next move before you reform again, don't you, to record another album in the early 90s? Yes. Um, uh, I, I actually, uh, I, I lived in New, I was living in New York for a while. And um, just uh, not being part of uh, modern English, and uh, then I went back to England in about nineteen nine, no, about nineteen eighty eight. For two years, I lived in New York. Then I went back to um, uh, England. Basically, uh, we'd um, kind of not split up. We just me and me and Robbie. I like the. the two who were like consistent then and then um we um you know as these things happen you, you know got a phone call from um uh, uh uh someone that worked for our management company he was working at a new record label called tbt who had uh, just signed up um uh nine inch nails oh my god nine inch nails because yeah, yeah, yeah. there's that famous bit on that documentary the beats with john jimmy iovine where he just hassles that guy to sign over nine inch nails doesn't he how did yeah, you yeah. how did you yeah. find working for such a a label tv tvt um I mean, it was wild the guy that in the label was um uh i mean i mean he, he, he i don't think he'll ever listen to this but he was a complete megalomaniac you know he he kind of like seemed to think that if he had a record label it would make him you know, he was more interested in making himself famous than he was, <clears throat> you know, his uh, bands that he signed. Yes. You know, he, he, he'd say, I've got all of this press uh, lined up. And you'd think, you know, good, he's, um, you know, working. And it would be like his own press, you know. <laughs> it would be like him being interviewed about his label. But uh, so, I mean... That, but, you know, it, and also, I mean, he, all he wanted was um, uh, to to reissue I Melt With You, basically. And, uh, you know, we uh, kind of um, said, you know, we'll do it, but, you know, we, we'll write an album as well, which uh, we did. I mean, and again, that was, um, you know, we, we didn't learn, you know, from the last thing. We kind of, like, just spent loads of money, well, his money, and um, kind of like didn't 
come up with anything that was really that incredible. You know, it was, we were we were still a bit lost. You know, I mean, that at that exact time, it was all um, Acid House was happening and um, Stone Roses and Happy Mondays and all of this. And um, you know, there was um, you know, first it was a bit like just a way to continue doing what we um, you know being in the band, but you know, we, you know, we did. We we worked hard at it, but it just wasn't um, the most satisfying. I mean, I certainly don't. I mean, if, if I was uh, if the house was on fire, I'd leave stop start and pillow lips in the house <laughs> and uh, <laughs> take uh, you know the first few records instead. <laughs> is is that the kind of after that experience? Did you then again? Was that the end of the band for another period of time? Yeah. Well. Uh, it, it was for me. Then I, um, I mean, I, I ended up joining, um, uh, you know, you know, lots of other friends. I, I ended up joining Stereo Lab, as they they just started in 1991, and Tim and uh, and uh, Russell, who was in a man called Moose, who was a really old friend of mine. So I was I joined Moose as well. So I was kind of like. In modern English, one day, and then the next day, I was playing in Stereo Lab and Moose, and um, did uh, you know that was really good fun because I didn't have to kind of like uh, uh, worry so much about writing any songs because yes. you know I was like uh, you know the keyboard player in one band and the bass player and keyboard player in another, and it was able to yeah you know, I'd never actually really played in a band before where other people, you know, it was their band. You know, with Modern English, it was always like, it always has been like my band, you know, so... It, and did it, you ride um, that sort of Britpop world at all? Was that sort of, did Moose get into that little scene for a bit? Well, kind of, you know, it was, they, they, they I mean, it, you know, the, the expression shoegaze was first Ooh. written in in a moose review yes you know because you know staring at their pebbles you know so so you could make the most distortion and fuzz and all of this i've forgotten the guy's name it was i mean a couple of people have claimed that they came up with andy ross at food records and uh such journalist i can't remember his name but yeah i was uh you know did uh about um three LPs in bits and bobs with Moose and toured. I, I used to kind of like be in Moose for a while. Then I wasn't in Moose. Then I'd be in Stereo Lab for a while. But um, then... Because um, you had, in the 80s, you had been in for a bit this mortal coil, hadn't you, as well? You'd yeah. Of, did you play on Song to the Siren at all? Yeah, we... I mean, we... <laughs> I. I um, saw Modern English play in New York and we did 16 and Gathering Dust, which was two early songs, and we did them together as an encore. And um, Ivo uh, thought, oh, this is quite interesting. We we should um, re-record these two songs as a 12-inch. And it, it didn't happen for us. And then Ivo decided that he'd um, form Get People on 4AE to do it so me and gary and robin and liz from the cocktails and martin from color box did a 
re-recorded those songs and Ivo had already come up with the name This Mortal Coil. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of, you know, it, it was average. And then um, Ivo, later on, you know, a couple of months later, came, uh, did um, Songs of the Siren with Robin and, and Liz. And that, that was supposed to be the B side. <laughs> but of course, you know, it was uh, okay. So obviously, this song is um, an amazing piece of music. So that became, uh, you know, the A side. And the thing that, you know, took off for um, this mortal coil, you know, became, I mean, it's an amazing song, you know, it's, really it was the Cocteau Twins, but as this mortal coil. Yes. Did the Cocteau know, Twins that, enjoy that experience? Did did Robin and Liz enjoy it or did they? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, I think, um, you know, it, it was, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's nice to kind of have been part of it, but, uh, the time it was uh you know uh, a, a, a bit strange must have been a bit weird for robin and liz because um you know it this song was um that they, they didn't really have any control over and robin it kind of like was you know 100 percent in control of the cocktail twins and yes. he managed everything that they did and uh suddenly there was this song with him and liz you know being played all over the place and um uh, you know, ha- having a life of its own. And so uh, Robin and I, uh, they always had a bit of a funny relationship towards the end anyway. But, um, you know, I think, um, you know, Robin would look at kind of, you know, think about how many copies has this sold and why haven't I got any money for it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. It's the usual. So then, it's it. yeah, so on that 90s period, you'd been in... Muse and uh, Stereo Lab. Then, then what happens after that? Because do you do you still sort of manage to navigate sort of flipping in and out of bands? No, I mean, for then I had a, a a very long period where I mean I've um, been going to AA now for fifteen years. Yes, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and uh, <clears throat> I um, uh, I've just outed myself. I um, uh, after um. The Moose and Stereo Lab thing, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I basically kind of um, stopped uh, playing music for quite a period of time. And then it was only uh, <clears throat> about 15 years ago when I um, decided that, okay, this is, I'm still alive, so I might as well, you know, uh, uh, stop drinking. And uh, then I... Um, uh, I lived in London for all of this period. You know, I'm still friends with uh, Russell, who really, uh, you know, my best friend. And then, and Scab, Steve from Colourbox. You know, they, we were still mates. It's, it's just that we weren't playing music anymore. We were just kind of like hanging out and drinking and, um, you know, very clever. But then I um, stopped drinking and um, uh, uh, started going to AA. And they, um, everyone in AA said, don't do anything crazy for the first year. Just go to meetings. Mm-hmm. And then as soon as uh, my first year was up, I uh, decided to uh, buy a boat and uh, move to Woodbridge in Suffolk, which I kind of knew. I had some friends there. Anyway, and I went to school 
in Ipswich, Wolverston, and my mum and dad in Colchester. So I kind of um, <clears throat> went there. And then um, it was, again, Russell from Moose, who used to come all the time. And Robbie lived in Albra and Thailand. And uh, uh, Russell, he, he's, he, he was um, the person who said, you two should uh, uh, start uh, playing music again together. And uh, so... So that was 15, 14 years ago. So then I rang up um, Steve Walker, the keyboard player, and I had to find Gary. He lived, he'd been living in Thailand for about 25 years. Yes. So I, I had to kind of track him down. And when, when I first got in touch with him on the phone, he um, actually denied that it, it was he who I was talking to. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, yeah, so finally I got him, you know. So then we um, uh, uh, basically uh, reconvened, you know, after um, you know, 15 or 20 year gap. Cheesy, crazy. Yeah. So when you finished playing music, which was like, was that 76, 77, 96, 97 time? Was that when you said you stopped playing music and then hit the drinking until? 15 years ago when you decided you needed to do something about it did yeah I get did I write so was that was that just yeah, a really yeah. lost period between the mid late 90s yeah yeah, to... yeah, yeah pretty much yeah you know because uh... I always remember David Bowie saying that he and I think Tony Visconti used to go to AA meetings and when someone mentioned yeah. about having a drink he would say well I'm an alcoholic and they would go but you're not. And it's like, no, I am an alcoholic. That's why I have to go to meetings and I can't just have one drink. It doesn't work like that. It's it's more, you know, people don't understand that one drink thing, do they? And actually, Ken's the same. When I did that when what interview with Ken from Wasted Youth, he had exactly the same story about alcohol and also heroin addiction. But that's another. I mean, we, we did a tour with Wasted Youth when I was oh, like eight. Yeah, the whole lot. I mean, it was that was the first tour we ever did when uh, we did our um, second four AD single. So, you know, from being an 18 year old to being in a van with them, you know, Wasted Juice, you cer I certainly uh, had my eyes opened. <laughs> you know, the, you know, I thought, I, I thought kind of people like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards could afford drugs. It was like, no, anyone, you know, if you, if, if you, if you want to get them, you can. <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, it's yeah. not good. But Rocco, Rocco, no, yeah, uh, Rocco's got. They've got the band back, and they're doing some material and live dates, yeah, and yeah. also, um, yeah, yeah. he makes glasses, which is just beautiful. Which I thought was That's a right. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. I, I, I mean, I've, I've been uh, friends with you know Rocco for, um, you know, forever. Is, you know, they're just. I mean, you know, so, I mean, some some people aren't here anymore, but um, you know, like my mate scab from colorbox he died and uh, when i um uh you know he's my oldest friend from boarding school but when i um stopped drinking i had this mission to kind of like go and save my friends you know and uh, steve uh you know i tried to get him to move to woodbridge to buy a, live on a boat come to aa meetings with me but he um just couldn't get it and then about four years later he died you know from a you know just 
drinking himself to death. But. Yeah, no, surrenders actually. But then, did you? I don't. I might have got this wrong. Did you fill in at one stage with Lush? Did you have a Lush connection? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was so, about. Um, was that uh, when they had reformed again on their American festival, and they were being sort of um, yes, they had some big dates in America, Coachella, and such places. So you sort yeah. of filled in for Phil at one for their kind of latter half of their tour. Uh, no, I did the very last concert of. Oh, the, I mean, at, at Manchester I, again. That was Russell from Moose, who um, and they seem to be. He, he's, he plays a very big part in my life in my music. He, um, I mean, I because I, I was Mickey is married to Moose, you know, yes. the, um, and um, then uh, Phil had. Didn't I don't know what happened? They had a bit of fallouts, and so I um stood in and played uh, the last. I mean, I learned twenty three songs, and played one concert. You know, it's a hell of a lot of learning to do, and then um uh, that that's how um Puroshka the, the the came about. Me, Justin, who was in Lush at the time, the original drummer from Elastica, he, um, uh, me, him and Mickey spent a lot of the time in rehearsals, learning the, doing the Lush stuff. <clears throat> and Emma, the other guitar player, would she only came to about two or three rehearsals. There was obviously stuff going on in that band, but um, we had, you know, it was such good fun that um, we knew that the band was going to split up after my one and only gig, and uh, that's when uh, I don't, don't get me in your band because you'll you'll finish. <laughs> but um, but um, then we um, decided that uh, you know we had so much fun we should form a, another group. You know, like yes. kind of side side projects. And um, you know, Moose was like the obvious choice for guitar playing. You know, I've made so many records with Moose as well. But um, then. Uh, you know, Piroshka, uh happened, and, which was, you know, it was good fun. It was like kind of, um, you know, middle-aged people uh, enjoying each other's company with friends. I mean, I'd known Mickey forever as well. Yes. So, um, yes, it was a bit like an indie supergroup, really, wasn't it? I know, I know. Well, you know, it, it, yeah, it, it, for want of a better word, you know, but... Uh, you know, when you think of supergroup, you always think of someone from Asia joining a band with someone from Supertramp. You know? <laughs> but all cream like Ginger Ginger Baker and uh, Eric. There you, go. Yeah, you know yeah. that that was your yeah, first yeah. in supergroup, really, wasn't it, Cream? So, so it was a sort of yeah. a, an equivalent. And you were on the Bella Bella Union, which was part of that whole world of the Cocteau Twins as well. It was Simon's label, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, it was. Um, we we actually, uh, I mean, I noticed you'd uh, interviewed Mickey recently. Yes, well. with her book as well. But, uh, yes, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, so we, so just as, as a guitarist, you, like you've been like you've got this one gig. Don't blow it. This is the last gig probably Lush will ever play. I mean, how do you learn the the kind of the whole repertoire and all the bass lines? Do you think mm, can we just kind of can I just keep it beast? You know, I mean, what is the process with that? Oh wow! I mean, with um, I mean, I played in quite a few bands, so um, but I take notes. You know, I listen to all of the all of the songs, and um, 
you know, write down all of the... This is what I learned from Hugh Jones, and that's kind of like... I mean, I, I can't write music, so it's just how to deconstruct the song onto a piece of paper. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Because Mickey and Emma, they wrote all of the songs themselves, you know, they didn't write together, they wrote separately. So then I got those two to um, send me what they played on the guitar as well and listening to the uh, records and um you know for i made a playlist and for about i did have about a month to get the whole thing together and i i basically just everywhere i went i was listening to um lush you know to, until it was like totally embedded and um i uh did about five rehearsals and um you know big because I've kind of practiced at home or like worked out all of the songs at home, you know, so it was okay. I mean, they, they, um, uh, both of them are um, absolutely incredible. I mean, it was like amazing songwriters, you know, and it's like they do things that uh, uh, normal musicians would never do. It's like with, I mean, this is getting a bit muso here, but with Emma, she'd uh, randomly just once in a song put in a C sharp. You know, that only happens once. You know, and it's like to the listener, you might not even notice it. But, you know, when you're kind of like digging into the music, you think, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, it was did just, you, did, to me, it was an amazing experience. Yeah. Did you, doing that, sort of have more of an appreciation of Phil's guitar, you know, bass playing? I mean, did you think, blimey, I didn't realise there was quite so much in an indie, you know, indie pop band? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, so I mean, when when you're a bass player, it's um, you know, you know, m most of it is about feel, you know, and it's like no two bass players will ever sound exactly the same because you know it's like no two drummers will sound the same. But um, you know, with um, uh, you know, with uh, Phil, he he's <coughs> he, he you know, Mickey and Emma will. You know, we say they were the bass lines as well, but it was like how they sound on the record. And I was, you know, trying to make it sound exactly like um, uh, Phil. You know, I was, you know, it was, um, you know, I mean, Lush fans are quite um, fanatical as well. You know, yes. I thought, you know, they, so there was like this kind of like short bloke suddenly appearing at their last gig. You know, I didn't. I kind of, I had my notes on music on a music stand and kind of stood next to um, uh, Justin. And then halfway through the gig, Mickey made a comment about the bass player, and uh, it was, uh, uh, you know, all I thought, oh God, you know, Mickey, she's, uh, you know, uh, quite, um, you know, she can suddenly say something that will like, uh, you know, half the room will laugh their heads off and the other half will think, oh, I say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, anyway, that was the, that was, yeah, that would be one of those pop quiz questions, wouldn't it really, about the last Lush gig and who was the bass player, because everyone will go, Phil King, no, that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you've yeah. lost a million pound. Never mind. So then, what does that? Um, what? So where are you now in the terms of your kind of musical kind of movement? Your next moment. <coughs> your next move. Okay. Well, so uh, we've just um, uh, finished recording a, a new modern English album, 
I mean, modern English have been playing consistently in America for um, <clears throat> probably about ten years. You know, was, uh, we. Um, I mean, a couple of a couple of months ago, we were on the Jimmy Fallon show, which is like in America is like a big deal. It's like um, uh, uh, like being on the Wogan show yes. kind of thing. Uh, so there's still um, uh, you know, we still it you know, tour a lot. We um, played um, uh, a couple of years ago, we did a tour with The Alarm in America, which is good fun. We played with those like decades ago. Um, <clears throat> so we've just done, done a, a new LP with a guy called Mario McNulty that, oh, in the studio, not far from he, here. He, he remixed some of those David Bowie albums from the 80s, didn't he? And he took out that 80s production. So was there he... Was he? You've worked with all of them, haven't you? Because you worked with, um, yeah, Christ, not John Porter. He was the other person you recorded with. In was it Pillow Lips? You had some yeah. oh, Pat uh, Collier as well. Pat Collier, Pat Collier, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, but with um, uh, Mario, he, um, uh, our manager, that uh, got me in touch with him, and. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, he, um, he he did loads of stuff with Bowie. He was kind of like Bowie's, uh, um, you know, engineer. And he did that one album, Never Let Me Down Again or something like that. He re-recorded an entire Bowie record after Bowie died. He, yeah. you know, left instructions for him. But one thing about Mario that, um, as a matter of fact, right now, well... Um, I, I was listening to, he's sending me mixes. He's in New York City uh, mixing. But uh, he started off by, um, uh, he was um, uh, Philip Glass's uh, engineer. He he was an intern for Philip Glass and ended up working on, Le who I totally love, he ended up working on loads of Glass records. And then Philip Glass had this studio called the Glass House in New York. And... Uh, but she used to share with David Bowie. Right. So um, he he kind of like engineered Philip Glass and then engineered Bowie's demos. And then <clears throat> he just kind of went off and started working with, um, uh, you know, all of these uh, Bowie people. I must admit, when I first met Mario, uh, we had lunch in New York. And uh, it was almost like I was interviewing him for, um, you know, uh, you know, okay, so tell me how this happened. You know, I wanted to know about how all of the things that had happened on these records that I really liked, <laughs> how they came about. You know, it's like kind of like a fanboy in a way. Yes. But, um, no, but, he, but the thing he, is, sorry, I was going to say, did he? I kind of remember now, did he go to Bowie's flat or house in New York and sort of set up a studio so he could sort of. Yeah keep recording even yeah. towards his latter years i hope you asked him about bowie's kitchen and interior decor i, I, I yeah yeah i mean he's i mean matt i mean when um you know the crazy thing is when you work with these kind of people like you know bowie and all that they all have to sign non-disclosure agreements yes so <laughs> you know uh you know, I, I've I've known Mario now for a couple of years, and uh, you know he, um, you know, occasionally he'll say, you know, oh yeah, David gave me that book, 
you know, and I think, oh, okay, because, you know, he was a great reader, David Bowie, and yes. Mario was quite young when I first met him, and I think he, um, you know, he, uh, just the, the way he, Bowie seems to have been quite generous, you know, and, um, you know, giving, uh, you know, this young New York kid, you know, the, all of these books to read, listen to this music, check out, you know, I mean, it's, you know, there's not many people that you meet in New York that look like Mario and they'll say their favourite record of all time is um, Taking Tiger Mountain by Storm, you know, quite an obscure Eno album. <laughs> you know, and, but having said that, he, um, you know, when you start your musical um, career with, with Philip Glass, you know, I mean, some of the things he told me about how Philip Glass records got put together were um, really kind of uh, mind-blowing. You know, and I thought, wow, you know, if, if he can work with, in those conditions, he can certainly work with, you know, old geezers like modern English, you know, without <laughs> too much other problem. But one, yeah. one thing about working with Mario, and that um, I, I'll just say this, is that, uh, not, you know, it, I've done, uh, uh, you know, worked with loads of different people, but we, before I used to be, uh, well, with Mario, it's a bit like, you go into the studio, recording, it's a bit like a um, Spacewood. You'd get the performance and come back in. And, you know, in those days you had 12 hours. So it was like, does anyone notice that mistake I made there? And if, you know, if people say, no, nah, I can't hear it, just carry on. You know, we, there was no kind of like, uh, be, you know, it's quite common to go to a studio and make a record and spend four hours listening to a bass line on its own or yeah. a hi-hat or a kick drum. We didn't do any of that. It was just like, sit back, listen to the whole thing and think, okay, that's good. Let's move on to the next song. And that, you know, I did say to Mario, is that how, you know, the next day was made? He said, yeah, you know, it was like, there was no, you know, no soloing of anyone's parts so you could hear what they were playing. It's just if it all sounds good as a band, just carry on. God, that's some relief, so. isn't it? You must have thought, oh, okay, well, that's good. We'll do that. I know there's some, yeah, it's it's interesting. But also, I expect you probably admired his amazing perfect teeth as well. Let's face it. Whenever you, <laughs> whenever you, whenever I interview Americans, I, I do have a bit of teeth envy and, um, I don't know. You know what it's like, isn't it? You know, it's a cliche, but it's true. You just think, Jesus, that's how did you get those to be so perfect? <laughs> Not wasting I know, and listen I know, to I know. <laughs> I know I've seen pictures. I, of how, I mean, I mean, I mean, living here, it's like, I, I don't know how they do it because you know, it's like we they don't have an NHS here. You know, going to the doctors is uh, you know, in, people spend so much money on their medical insurance and all that stuff here is well actually yeah. i didn't interview yesterday with a guy from new york who was in the richard hell band ivan julian who yeah, you yeah. know and um yeah, yeah, he, he, he yeah. told me that um when he got diagnosed for cancer he didn't you know didn't have any money and it was just like i'm afraid you're gonna have to die but then you know luckily he managed to somehow persuade it but it was like jesus that's that is just unbelievable if if you haven't got your insurance already sorted out before you get uh, you know the 
the diagnosis and the results yeah, you're a yeah. bit you're a bit up the you know up the creek really so yeah it was it was kind of you know it was 2015 he suddenly had that experience so um yes yes we we take it for granted the nhs but yeah it's uh, quite fortunate you know? no, completely but and you know right now like um you know here you know the tories have been in power now for 12 years and it's like they um you know wondering why um you know the NHS is in such a bloody, you know, state. It was like, well, you know, you can't blame, you know, nurses for, um, you know, what's going on. You know, it's no. like, I mean, I mean, yeah. Recently, I heard someone on. It's insane, you know, being here. But, um, you know, someone was saying that his, his daughter is four months old, and in that time, she's seen off um, three prime ministers and uh, one monarch. You know, there's <laughs> like, you know, in four months, it's like. A new king and three different prime ministers. I know it's kind of cra- crazy world. So, look, if you could have whispered something to your sixteen-year-old self starting out, is there any little bits of advice you would have given them that would have made you think, even if that person had ignored you, what would you, what would you have said? Um. God. Well. Um, I don't, I, I, that's such a hard question. Uh, probably I would have said, uh, and, and I probably would have ignored it, and that would have been um, study music theory a bit more and, uh, you know, learn to um, uh, read music as well. Yes. But <clears throat> you still managed to sort of get through all those bands and experiences <laughs> with, with great upon. so just going to back to modern english with your new re- album did you say what label you're on or are you not on a label yeah well we we <clears throat> we, we have our own label we um we released um uh so far we've released two albums we did an lp called take me to the trees about six years ago we did that in my studio in suffolk and then uh last year we did um a live uh, from the O2 version of um, After the Snow that we did during lockdown. Yeah. And so this new album is, um, uh, I mean, at the moment, it's, uh, we, you know, we, you know, we financed it ourselves. You know, we haven't actually played it to any, um, you know, other labels. I mean, I might um, uh, send the copy to Simon. <laughs> See what he <laughs> thinks. But, but, you know, there's, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's you know, we're, we're, I haven't really thought about that at the moment. Well, you know, we're, when it's finished, and um, you know, I mean, we're, we're using uh, you know Vaughan Oliver, who did all of the artwork at Four AD. He died yes. about two, three years ago. But Chris, his um, you know, kind of like um, you know, uh, artistic partner at the Vaughan Oliver V twenty three. He is doing our artwork. Chris did, um, you know, on the Rima Rima poster, you, yeah, the, the film. If you, Chris is the person that did all of the uh, graphics, and um, you know, I can recognise Chris's work in it straight away. He's doing a, he he's doing our artwork now. So there's, you know, it still looks and sounds like a modern English record, but um, we, um, you know, a, a couple of years ago we. Um, um, at, we, we were able to re, 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 re got our own publishing back 
and our own uh, copyright and our own music back from 4AD in America. So we own all of our um, uh, back catalogue as well. So, you, you know, Modern English is also a kind of like a, a mini business as well for us now. So um, we, we, it's, you, you know, we, we're not beholden to a record company. We can basically do what, what we want. Yes. You know, when we want to do it as well. Which is amazing. And I'm guessing, though, you don't own the TVT record. Uh, well, do you know what? We uh, are in the very pr process of getting that back as well. I mean, they went bankrupt, TVT Records, and it uh, seems to me it's owned by someone uh, called The Orchard right now. And um, but we, uh, you, you, we, we will be owning it. I mean, we even own Stop Start as well you know we all, all of our records we own now uh, pillow lips will definitely be returning to the canon whether i will let anyone know about it i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yes it's always it's always tricky so that's good you're on spotify do you have Bandcamp as well and all those other sites that people can we do up? i i you're you're talking to the modern english social media person here as well but uh, uh, and I, I do all of this stuff, but um, I don't. Um, uh, I don't put. I don't really put much on Bandcamp. You know, quite often there's so much going on that um, I forget. You know that. Um, you know, I haven't been on Bandcamp for a while or done anything there. That I think there is some stuff I haven't looked at Bandcamp for ages. Yes. I have to say, but Apple Music, we're on. We're on Spotify. I mean, it, it's. You know, uh, basically, it's like the thing that keeps the whole thing going is I melt with you. you know, yeah. If, if the figures for on Spotify for I melt with you are quite, you know, pretty good. Eye watering. That is amazing, isn't it? That is really fantastic. Yeah. Well, look, thank you yeah. ever so much for this. This has been amazing. And if you want, I can always um, send you the link, and then you could use it on one of your social media platform sites because you've got all of them, haven't you? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. This is absolutely, good. yeah. That's been plenty. Well, thank you ever so much for this. This has been really yeah, exciting, and I'm so pleased you've got a boat in Woodbridge. You can <laughs> and you can listen to some classical concerts just up the road, can't you? In dear old uh, Snape, I love it. Yeah, Snape Moldings, amazing place. We we um uh, modern English have so far we we done two uh, Benjamin Britten. You know, every year they have the uh, Benjamin Britten Festival. Yes, and uh, they. We we played a couple of them. It's you know it's always good fun. We uh you know we have a, a kind of rehearsal place in Aldborough as well. So uh, you know we're um you know part of you know part of the local kind of like that. Oh look, there's another bunch of musicians walking around. It's it's a lovely place, Aldborough. Oh God, it must be beautiful. Yeah, and I've been you know often I head to Walberswick. Sometimes Southwold, that kind of direction, you know, Dunwich. Very nice. You can't, you know, it's just perfect, isn't it, really? We're lucky, so yeah. there you go. But anyway, look, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing. Yeah. And uh, have a great day. I will do. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. See you. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with Michael Conroy, sometimes known as Mick. But there you go. Anyway, that's Modern English. If you want to find out any more information, go to their website, which is Modern English dot m e
There you go. But just Google it. It's fine. And they have, uh, as I said, lots of shows coming up and other bits and pieces. So anyway, that's it. This has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.